Today we're going to talk about survival modes and rarity systems. Hey everyone, welcome to the 77th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I am your host, Zachafelli. You can find me on Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it, at underscore Zaccavelli underscore, and tune in for game development streams on twitch.tv slash underscore. We also have an open community discord that's free for everyone to join. If that interests you, you can find a link to that in the show notes. With the intro out of the way, let's move on over to the Game Dev Challenge. The Game Dev Challenge is the part of the show where I provide a prompt to the listeners, and it's intended to be a 15 to 30 minute exercise. People usually respond to the prompts on the Game Dev Field Guide Discord, and we vote on the submissions, and the one that gets the most votes, I end up reading on the show. Last week's episode was about survival games, not to be confused with survival modes, which we're going to talk about today, but it was a genre study on survival games. And the prompt was... Pitch an idea for a survival game starting with a core dynamic and going from there. Remember on last episode we talked about core dynamics and how survival games are driven by dynamics and how maybe a good core dynamic is the bedrock of a fun survival game. Well, we got a lot of submissions for this, but there was one winner and that winner was The Dairy Kaiser. Derry Kaiser's post is titled Lucid. The core mechanic, instead of a hunger bar that constantly depletes, uh, that's in reference to other survival games, we talked about hunger being a good core dynamic that kind of drives pressure on the player to get out and do things and explore the world and most importantly look for food. But yes, Derry Kaiser's post says, instead of hunger bar that constantly depletes, you are juggling a tiredness bar and a fear bar. Should the fear bar reach 100, the dreamer slash player will wake up because of night terrors. However, should the tiredness bar reach to zero, then you will wake up due to not being tired. This is an issue as the protagonist is an insomniac and needs as much sleep as they can get tonight. You can explore the dreamscape, gather resources, and craft items to help manage both, as well as retreat to safe areas to manage fear or to explore to increase tiredness. Otherwise, it's a fairly normal survival game, but set in a dream instead. To decrease fear, you need to go to areas that are safe, thus lower your tiredness. To increase tiredness, you need to go to areas that are unsafe, and thus increase fear. Similar idea for the items you'll craft. I really like this idea from Derry Kaiser for two reasons. One, it's a really cool setting, this kind of dreamscape for a survival game. That's really unique and not something that I've seen before. We've seen a lot of different kinds of open world survival games, whether it be you're on stranded in the ocean or there's dinosaurs or we've seen all sorts of crazy different twists, but I've never seen the dream one before. So just on a creative level, this is really cool. But on a mechanical game design level, I think this also works pretty well. You almost have this constant push and pull between tiredness and fear that keeps you exploring 
uh, but also kind of reins you in a little bit and allows for some progression. I can imagine some kind of items you can craft that make the fearful areas not so fearful. Or another item you can craft that maybe holds your tiredness for a little bit longer than usual. I hope you can see by Kaiser designing this push and pull, they've also given themselves some levers to inspire uh, the kinds of items they're going to craft and maybe even some of how the baseline mechanics are going to work. So yeah, congrats to the Dairy Kaiser for their episode 76 Game Dev Challenge win. For episode 77, I want you to identify three key things that made your favorite rarity system or horde mode successful. Today is going to be a quick tips episode, and these are two things that I've always wanted to talk about, but they've never had enough meat on the bones to make a whole episode about them, so I kind of just clamped them into uh, one entire episode. But yeah, this is one of those split choice game dev challenges. Maybe you could even do both in your post if you want. But yeah, we're going to talk about rarity systems and maybe some traps that come along with those and also horde modes and things that that I think make those successful. So when you're done listening to this episode, if you're feeling inspired to talk about one of these two things from one of your favorite games or maybe just come up with a new one uh, for a game you're working on, feel free to go over to the Game Dev Challenge channel in our community Discord and leave a post there. I will read the winning submission on the next episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. With the Game Dev Challenge out of the way, let's move on over to the body of the episode. Today, as I mentioned, is a Quick Tips episode. And it's been a minute since our last Quick Tips episode, but as a reminder, Quick Tips is for topics that aren't quite long enough to be their own episode, but there's not enough meat to the topics to warrant a deeper discussion. So yeah, we kind of have two topics today, and they're not... They're a little bit related, but yeah, I guess you could think of today as two mini episodes smashed together in one. So anyways, let's get started with today's quick tips. The first topic I want to talk about today is survival or horde modes. I call them horde modes, but I think the more technical term is survival modes. They were really popular in the late 2000s and early 2010s. Uh, If you played games then, you probably have played some version of them, whether it be Call of Duty's Zombies Mode, Halo's Firefight, or in Gears of War 2, I think it's called Horde Mode, and that's where the name comes from that I call them. I like to use the word Horde uh, just because I think Survival Mode has a different meaning in a post-Minecraft era, and I think if I said Survival Mode, people would think I'm thinking of Survival Games, which is a different thing. Anyways, these grew to be the hot game mode in that era, sort of like how Battle Royales came and went as a hot mode more recently. Funnily enough, I think Fortnite's original intention was for it to be a co-op horde mode game where you use the build mechanics to build a base and survive against waves of zombies. And it ended up pivoting away to a battle royale when that game mode got hot. So, yeah, just an interesting thing about how these things are connected. Anyways, I suppose I should break down what exactly a horde mode is. The core idea is that the player or players have to face off against waves of enemies. Each wave gets progressively more difficult, usually including things like new enemy types or more numerous enemies. A key part of the game loop is that there's usually a rest period between waves. The rest period is used to improve the player's power somehow, 
whether that be stocking up on supplies, getting new weapons, just regrouping, etc. I think the rest period is not only important so that it gives the player the ability to match the progressive difficulty with progressive upgrades, but I think it also works as a pacing device. The waves of enemies usually climax with stress and intensity towards the end, and the rest period gives the player some time to mentally reset. I think if the waves came one after another with no break period, or if it was just a steady stream of increasing enemies, the player would fatigue easily as the constant intensity would just burn them out. So I guess that would be my tip number one. Make sure your rest period between waves isn't just for getting upgrades, but also a mental break from the intensity. One way I could see this going wrong is if the upgrade process was also very intense. You almost want to make it as streamlined and easy as possible to avoid the mental burnout of having a more complex system with a lot of friction. Now, that's not to say make it shallow. Like, I think if there was only one option for upgrading in between rounds, that kind of takes a lot of the fun out of the strategy of the game. How early do you buy that good gun? What kinds of power-ups do you want? Should you save your money and not upgrade and wait for the next wave? Those kinds of strategies are fun, and if you streamline or reduce it too much, you might lose those. All of these are interesting decisions that I think makes the game more fun and offers a lot of opportunity for replayability and mastery. That being said, notice how they're all simple and streamlined decisions. You don't have to look up stats or do any super complex logic to come to an answer. Striking the balance of enough decisions to make it interesting, but not too many or too complex decisions to break that rest period is important. Another thing I want to mention about horde modes is that I think it's important to get its game feel like almost perfect. We don't talk about game feel enough, but it's especially important to get it right in these kinds of modes. If you're going to be killing hundreds, maybe thousands of enemies, it better feel good or it's going to get old for the player really quick. I think it's worth investing a lot of time in making sure the game feel around killing enemies feels good. And I keep using these phrase killing enemies because they're based on the old horde modes, but you could do a survival mode based on anything. It doesn't have to be around combat. Just make sure that that core thing that you're doing over and over and over is fun because I think that's the source of satisfaction for these modes. For me personally, I think about it, um, is there anything more satisfying than holding a narrow hallway in Call of Duty Zombies with a machine gun and chaining together hundreds of headshots in one long burst? It just feels really good and it's so satisfying I could never get bored with that. And I think having that satisfaction of that repeatable core game feel, um, I think that's an important part of the puzzle so make sure if you're going to make a horde mode game, that core action that the player is doing over and over and over, make sure that is really satisfying. The last thing I want to say about horde modes is that, well, I guess it's really more of an observation than a tip, uh, but I know what a lot of you are probably thinking. Why are we talking about a mode that went out of style like a decade ago? And me saying that out loud actually makes me feel kind of old because these modes were some of the golden years of gaming for me, and uh, to know they're just a decade ago is just weird. But anyways, I think the reason we should still talk about them is that I don't think they went away, really. 
They may even be in another comeback. Let's look at a game like Vampire Survivors. I've seen a lot of people try and come up with a new name for that genre that that game is in. Uh, But now that I think about it, isn't it just a more modern, maybe more indie version of these older game modes? It's satisfying killing waves of progressively hard and more numerous enemies with a rest period in between waves with various upgrades. Now, I think the pacing is a little different. I think, actually, the killing enemies part is a little more passive and not so intense, and therefore the upgrade section can be a little bit more complex. But at its heart, I think horde modes were the ancient ancestor that games like Vampire Survivors evolved into. And therefore, all of these lessons are lessons that are still relevant to one of the most popular indie genres at this present day. And to me, it's just really cool to kind of look back into video game history and see the prototype ideas and be able to connect those two dots from the past to the future. So yeah, I just thought that was an interesting observation. But you tell me what you think. Maybe they aren't alike at all to you. Um, Or maybe you know like the missing piece that connects the 2010 era horde modes to the 2023 era survivor likes or whatever we're calling them. Maybe there's a 2017 game out there that I'm not aware of that kind of is the missing link, if you will, uh, of the evolution of that genre. Okay, let's move on to the next topic for today's episode, which is rarity systems. Now, rarity has always been a huge interest of mine. I've been a collector my whole life, and whatever that genetic or environmental thing that is that makes people want to collect stuff, I have that. So naturally, rarity has always been an interest of mine. And I wanted to take a moment to talk about designing rarity, because I think there are some ways you can get it wrong and other ways you can get it almost immorally right. First, though, I think we should talk about why there is rarity systems in the first place. Fundamentally, I think rarity exists as a progression mechanic. It's a good way of giving something to a player and allowing them to compare. If things that are rare have better stats or powers than things that aren't, and if they are statistically rare, meaning you have to play for a while before you get them, then you have basically a progression system built in. The player should play more and more and statistically see better and better things. But statistics can be funny, and what they should do isn't always what they actually do. So I think there's two ways related to that idea where things can go wrong. You can mess up the pacing by making things too rare or not rare enough, and you can make the mistake of relying entirely on pure RNG to drive your rarity system. Let's talk about the first case of messing up the pacing. I've said it before, and I think we talked about it heavily in episode 12 on loot progression, but Diablo 2 has the greatest item progression and rarity pacing, I think, in all of video games. In case you've never played, which is a crime by the way, if you like action RPGs and don't mind a slower pace, uh, Diablo 2 Resurrected is fantastic. But yeah, in case you are a video game criminal and haven't played Diablo 2, I'll go through its rarity system. Funnily enough, you might already be familiar with it because almost all modern games, I think, with loot take inspiration from Diablo 2. But yeah, let's just get into it. 
In Diablo, you have items like swords, armor, amulets, stuff like that. And they have different rarity classes. Each increasingly rare class adds special properties to the item. The special properties can be stat boosts like increased strength or mana, or it can be crazy stuff like when you're hit, you have a chance to automatically shoot lightning bolts out of your body. High rarity class items usually have more and stronger special properties, and each class kind of has its own pool of properties that it is randomly drawn from when a piece of loot is generated. The classes are normal, which have nothing more than the basic properties of an item, like on a sword that might be a baseline damage and attack speed. Then we get magic items. In addition to the basic properties, you get one or two randomly chosen special properties. After magic items, we have rare items. Rare items can have up to six of those randomly rolled special properties. Above rare, we have unique. Unique items have static special properties, meaning unlike the other rarities that randomly choose from a pool, unique items are always the same special properties. And these special properties are some of the coolest and most unique in the game. However, the values can still be randomly rolled. So a unique might have a special property like added fire damage, and the unique might have a range to it that it can roll. It can be anywhere between 50 and 100, for instance. I'll explain why that is an important wrinkle uh, a little bit later. But yeah, just remember that that uniques can have ranges um, so that two uniques of the same exact kind, one might be a little bit better because one of the numbers rolled higher. When I was a kid and I was playing a lot of Diablo 2, which I was probably too young to be playing it, but <laughs> when I was playing it, I loved being a dual-wielding axe barbarian. And I found a unique axe called Pompey's Wrath. Pompey's Wrath has a static property that says 4% chance to cast a volcano on hit. Meaning every time you hit something, there's a 4% chance a volcano will pop up out of the ground. Pair this with an ability that hits a lot, like Whirlwind or Frenzy, and you have a recipe for awesomely fun chaos. I'm not sure how that's relevant to me teaching you about rarity, uh, but I think it gets across how cool unique items are. And I should mention that some uniques are more rare than others. You could probably even break up uniques into their own levels. Common uniques, uncommon uniques, rare, and even ultra-rare uniques. And remember that because I'm going to be coming back to that point in a second. What makes this all work so well in Diablo isn't the rarities themselves, but it's the pacing, the progression, and the purpose of the rarities. Plenty of other games have cool uniques and rare loot, but what Diablo 2 does better than all of them is pace the rate at which you get these items. In my opinion, it has the perfect feeling odds. In the first act, not that many rares drop, and those magic items with only one or two properties feel like something special. But by the middle acts, you've upgraded with a few rares, and maybe even had that awesome moment when your first unique drops. And you're probably saying to yourself, but surely once you're getting uniques more often in the, in the late or end game, uh, the shininess or the specialness of a unique starts to wear off, right? 
Well, no, because of that not all uniques are equal thing. First off, you have the different roles, right? I could drop the same unique twice, which by the way, if you're not familiar with the lingo, when someone says drop, they mean the enemies drop it for you to pick it up, not you just left it on the ground. I'm realizing while recording that that sounds weird if you never have played, but yeah, that's what I mean. You could have a unique drop from the enemy that you've already seen before, but you pick it up, and because of those random property rolls, uh, this unique could be even better than the other one you have. Even though they have the same static properties, the same art, the same thing, you're almost getting like a more pure version of it. But also remember there's different kinds of tiers of uniques. Not officially, but behind the scenes, the odds are making it so that you see some uniques quite often, and some are extremely rare. There are people who have been playing Diablo 2 for 20 years that are still chasing some of those ultra-rare uniques. If you want to get a sense of how this feeling is, or why this is so cool, like hunting these uniques, just go onto YouTube and search for Diablo 2 loot videos. There'll be things like, I did this boss for a thousand hours or a thousand times, and here's the breakdown of all the loot I got. And you can get a good feel of what kinds of uniques are really rare, and I don't know, they're just really fun videos. And if you're not going to go play Diablo 2, this is a way to get a little bit cheaper experience uh, time-wise. But I'd still recommend you go out there and do it yourself. Once you realize that a lot of the fun of this game is hunting those crazy uniques and trying out the different strategies that they allow you to do, I think this is when you really start to understand what I meant about the pacing of items in this game. There's always something to look forward to, and there's always something that you appreciate about the gear you have right now. And we haven't even gotten into the rune words, the exponential rarity of runes, rune crafting. One other thing I wanted to mention about this is, well, it seems like the normal items, like why do they even exist? They don't have any special properties. Uh, they're just kind of there. Like what's the point of those? Well, without getting too deep into the weeds, um, you can craft your own items. So these normal things without any special properties uh, they're valuable because you're looking for a base of something you like. Let's say you know that your build of how your class is really benefits from critical strike or fast attack speed or something like that. Well, then you're looking for that normal item that has that, but it doesn't have any of the other modifiers because you're going to craft your own. You can do this with the rune words. You can do it through some quests. The point is, the normal items act as a good base, and this makes them have purpose. And that's another reason why I think the pacing and progression and this rarity system really works, is every tier has purpose. I think this was something that was kind of groundbreaking about Diablo 2, and admittedly the crafting system wasn't quite that deep, although I still think it's perfectly functional and I, I really enjoyed I really enjoyed the different rune words. But I can't keep going on about Diablo. This is just going to be turned into a Diablo podcast if I keep doing it. But uh, yeah, this crafting idea is where later games like Path of Exile kind of grew and built upon the foundation that Diablo 2 built. And I think they took this idea of making every 
item rarity have purpose uh, to a new level? And I think that was wise and good rarity system design. To sum it up, there's an excitement of wondering what's going to drop next. And there's a natural pacing to having items and rarities that you have right now that you appreciate because of their special properties or because of their potential that they're going to be the base item for something you're going to build and craft yourself. And I think Diablo puts all of these things together and gets just the perfect ratio between all of them. And although every other game is trying to do this on a surface level, it's not like I'm the only one who sees this. I think everyone can see this, but no one seems to get it as right as Diablo 2, and I always wondered why that is. I haven't quite figured out why that is, but I have seen a few ways where things seem to go off the rails. You either start getting rare stuff too early, making the magic items feel totally obsolete, looking at you, Diablo 4. Or the awesome endgame uniques are way too rare, making it so that you'll never see them. It's like they're not even in the game. Looking at you again, Diablo 4. If you follow the streams, you'll know I was really into Diablo 4 earlier this summer. And now that I've had some time to reflect on it, I think Diablo 4 is really fun one or two times. What I mean by that is one or two times through the story or through a character. But after that, it doesn't have the same replayability as Diablo 2. It doesn't make me want to keep doing it over and over and over and keep finding loot. And I think part of that is their loot and rarity systems are not designed well and don't have this pacing and progression that Diablo 2 did. For instance, in Diablo 4, yes, they brought back the ultra-rare uniques, those things that are super, super hard to find. Remember when I said that uniques could even be put into tiers, like common, uncommon, rare, and super rare. Uh, the problem with Diablo 4 is there's nothing in between the common uniques and the super rare uniques. And the super rare uniques are so rare, it's like winning the lottery. In other words, it's never going to happen. I, I don't have a problem with the idea that you have an item out there that is so hard to find that it's almost like mythological, right? You hear it about it on an, on a forum post or something like that. And you're like, no, that doesn't really exist. And then you see a screenshot and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> that's a fine enough idea. I think that's kind of fun. Uh, Diablo 2 had items like that, like Tyrael's Might, which I heard is like a one in 500,000 chance of dropping. But unlike Diablo 2, there's no mid-level, there's no uncommon or rare uniques. There's just regular uniques and then the ultra rare ones. And so the pacing is totally broken because there's no overlap to bridge that gap. The ultra rare are so rare, you're never going to see them. And the regular ones just become the new common loot when you get to the end game. It also lacks purpose in a lot of the rarities. Uh, there's not runes to hunt or rare things that you can realistically find. Crafting is sort of bare bones. And so what you end up with is loot that you don't really care about. And that stops you from playing over and over and over. I know once I was one or two times through and I tried all the character classes I wanted to try and I saw the story, which is excellent by the way, it just didn't grab me for those subsequent playthroughs. And I'm just bringing that uh, criticism to your attention. This isn't like a video game review podcast, but I wanted to bring that criticism up 
because I wanted you to see how easy it is to mess up the pacing and progression of the rarity system. I think a lot of people will look at that and say, well, oh, just Blizzard's bad designers. They don't know what they're doing. But I always have to remind people that these designers are professional designers. This is what they do. This is what they study all day, every day. They were likely going for something like Diablo 2, maybe elements of it, and combining it with other things. And I just wanted to show you how easy it is for experts to make mistakes and mess this up. So if you're going to do something like this for your game, don't take it lightly. you got to really study what makes a rarity system good and how to blend it with your game. It's not as simple as just making things common, uncommon, and rare, and changing the color of the text and randomly dropping them with different odds. It's something you really got to think about. And I think Diablo 2 is an excellent example of how to do it right. And speaking of doing it right, I have one big tip for you that I think will set you off in the right direction. And I think the tip is actually to avoid a mistake. And the mistake is one I mentioned earlier. That is relying entirely on RNG to drive your rarities pacing and progression. Using RNG, random number generation, has a ton of awesome uses for games. But I would argue that one of the most important things we do as game designers, which is evoking emotion in players, is hard to do with pure RNG. Let me set a scenario for you. Let's say you're a player playing an action RPG, and you get to a boss battle where you've killed a big bad. All the recent events have led up to this climactic battle, and you go through this intense and emotionally trying boss battle, and you're victorious, and you feel relief and excitement for what you're about to get as a reward, and the boss drops a plain white item, nothing special, that you've seen dropped from rats you killed at level 1. Now, if you're using pure RNG to decide what the boss drops, that's a real possibility. And that's kind of a bummer. You've set up this awesome moment and you're evoking emotion from the player, right? The sort of climax and the relief after and the, and the excitement for like, oh, what am I going to get for this? Even if you set the odds to 99% to drop something good, one out of 100 players are still going to get a dud. And you've ruined all of that emotional roller coaster that rise that you helped build. Now I understand why you'd want a loot table uh, with non-guaranteed drops for a boss. If you guarantee it every time, it's going to break the pacing in a different way like we were talking about. The player's just going to rerun the boss over and over getting good items. But as intelligent designers, let's focus on the emotion side of this. Emotionally, this boss is going to be the most fulfilling on the first time you beat it. So, knowing that, let's force the RNG to have a minimum good drop only on that first encounter. This allows us to avoid that anticlimactic emotional situation I described earlier, where you beat this big boss and you don't get anything, because now we have a guaranteed drop that's going to come from this boss, but only on that first encounter. On the second time, we can go back to that more balanced loot table, the one that doesn't guarantee something good's going to drop for balance reasons. And it doesn't matter if it's less emotionally fulfilling because the player is already subconsciously expecting that, being the second time they've done this boss. 
they already know the story. They've already gone through this emotionally charged moment. It's not going to be the same the second time you do it. And so knowing that the emotion is not as important here, we don't have to worry about having that anticlimactic moment. And that's what I mean by controlling and guiding the chaos of RNG to help your rarity system evoke the emotions you want for the player. Now, controlling this RNG to evoking emotions to the player can be used immorally or almost in an evil capacity, at least in my opinion. Controlling RNG to get the perfect emotions out of you is done masterfully with loot boxes or surprise mechanics. A game like FIFA with its pack openings and the chances of getting rare players are surgically designed to control the RNG to just get you emotional enough to keep buying packs. So, if you're going to go down this road by evoking emotions from players through these RNG mechanisms, all that I ask is now that I've given you directions down this path of using RNG but controlling it to evoke emotions, now that you know about that, just do me a favor and use it to spark experiences of joy and excitement without undertones of addiction or malicious compulsion. I'm not interested in teaching uh, stuff behind loot boxes or slot machines, but in this case, there is a gray area where it starts to get off into that direction. And I talked before about that gray area and the dividing line between a game loop and a compulsion loop. But yeah, I think the easiest way to put it is, you know in your heart when you've crossed the line. So it's just something to consider when trying to control emotions with RNG mechanics like rarity systems. Okay, we've had a bit of a design-focused quick tips episode today, but let's kind of revisit what we learned. The first thing we talked about was horde modes. You could also call them wave-based survival modes. These were popular in the late 2000s and early 2010s. You probably have played Zombies for Call of Duty or Firefight for Halo, Horde mode for Gears of War, etc. Remember that if you're designing this mode, you need to include rest periods in between waves. Not only as a chance to give the player upgrades and resupply, but also as an emotional break from the intensity. Remember that it's important to perfect the core gameplay that the player will be doing during the wave. If the shooting, for instance, isn't fun, then the player is not going to want to be shooting wave after wave of enemies. Lastly, it might feel like horde modes are outdated, but I think they have actually somewhat metamorphosed, or at least have similar DNA to things like Brotato and Vampire Survivors. In the second half of today's episode, we talked a lot about Diablo 2, I mean, rarity systems. <laughs> I think there's two main ways that rarity systems can get messed up. They don't have the right pacing or progression, and they rely on pure RNG to drive rarity. You can solve this, or at least try to solve it. Remember, it's a very hard problem or a very hard formula to get perfect, but you can try to solve it by making sure each rarity has purpose and nailing that pacing and progression so that the player is always looking forward to what's next, but also appreciating what they have. And remember not to use pure RNG to drive these rarities. Change the RNG to get those emotions you want out of the player. 
manipulate it, cheat it, do whatever you have to do to spark experiences of joy and wonder and excitement. Just remember that manipulating RNG is a sort of a double-edged sword and can be used to spark compulsion and addiction. So be aware of that fine line and make sure we're designing things for the right reasons. And yeah, I think that's going to do it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you got some good tips out of today's episode that you're going to use for your games or at least something to think about and get better at design. I want to hear your thoughts. I want to hear your thoughts on a lot of things we talked about today, whether that be the link between horde modes of the late 2000s and games like Vampire Survivors or Brotato, or if you want to tell me why I'm absolutely right in that Diablo 2 has the greatest item progression of all time. If you'd like to tell me those things, uh, you can do it on Twitter or X. <laughs> I still don't know what we're calling it. It seems like the company is calling it one thing, but the people actually using it are still calling it Twitter. So I don't know. Either way, you can find me at underscore Zaccavelli underscore, and I would love to have a chat about that. Another good place to have chats like these is in the episode discussion channel on our community discord. There's an open invite link in the show notes. When I say show notes, it is attached to every podcast. It's just like in a little drop-down menu. I don't know which podcast app you're using to listen to this, so it's a little bit different for everyone. But in Spotify, it's under the See More option. Um, so yeah, I'm sure if you look, you'll be able to find it. There's a link in there for our community Discord. And yeah, the community has grown huge, and there's people constantly talking um, so much so that I can't keep up with every conversation anymore. There was a time when I kind of knew everyone and all the different conversations going on and what's happening, but it's flourished so much as a community. It's like trying to pay attention to all of the conversations in a city. At this point, I'm just participating in these one-off conversations here and there. I can't even see everything from the top. So yeah, it's become a full-fledged community and I'm really proud of it. And I think there's really good discussions there, really good advice. There's places to get feedback and there's places to talk about the episodes and specifically the channel episode discussion is where I want to have these conversations. Let's talk about the rarity systems of different games and why Diablo 2 is the best. If you have thoughts on that, feel free to tag me in the post and uh, yeah, I'll come check it out. With that, I think I'm going to sign off. I have been Zaccavelli. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Diablo 2 Field Guide.